And welcome. Oh, welcome. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Welcome to uh, the latest in our series, The Feminine Divine. And we are very gifted today to have as our guest uh, Rabbi Bachir. Um, rabbi Bachir is um, uh, obviously a rabbi in the Jewish tradition. And she has consented to come on and talk a little bit about um, women in the traditions of Judaism, because Sean and I, as a pagan and a Roman Catholic, um, we, we are blank slates when it comes to knowledge about Judaism. <laughs> and just so everyone's clear, fold. You're the pagan. I'm the Roman Catholic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. also, just that you are Don Sam Alden. Good to hear your voice, Don. Absolutely. As and and I am Sean Marlon Newkin. Absolutely. Greetings, greetings. Okay. greetings. And Rabbi Bachir Torchio coming to you from San Francisco. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for being here. Yay. My pleasure. Wonderful. So, my goodness, it's been a while since we've done one of these. Um, so I guess uh, maybe if you want to just do a little introduction, um, Bachir, so that you can tell us a little bit about uh, where you come from, how you got here. Uh, it's a great story. Um, so when I was five years old, I found myself underneath the Passover table in my great aunt and uncle Trudy and Max's uh, underneath their Seder table. I'd gotten tired by 10 o'clock. Uh, Seder is a springtime festival in the Jewish tradition. And I was lying there on my back. I probably had maybe a thimbleful of Manischewitz, enough to make my <laughs> cheeks red and um, sort of relax me. And I was looking at the feet around me and hearing the most sort of seductive and foreign language floating around above me and that was Hebrew and Hebrew songs and you know the the narrative of the exodus from Egypt and the uh, desert wandering towards Sinai. I knew nothing about this because I had no formal Jewish education. Of course I was only five at the time but I do remember feeling a such a pull toward uh, wanting to know more about it but also like very effortlessly understanding that I was a part of it. So fast forward, you know, I'm, I grew up in New York, uh, Holocaust survivor, uh, family, first generation American. My family never talked about that part of their history until I was much older. And all of these tributaries were sort of coming together. And I found myself, um, well, it was a professor at Stony Brook University where I did my undergraduate work, who said, slapped me on the back and said, hey, Bachir, I think you need to go to rabbinical school. And I, like so many other people, I'll speak about my own experience, did not envision myself as a rabbi. But what I did know was the more I studied, the more I wanted to know. But more than that, I wanted to teach or be engaged in conversation about this Jewish stuff, which uh, it became, I think the thing I was most attracted to as a young adult was this ethical system mm. uh, that grew out of Hammurabi's code. Anyway, that's, that's a little bit about my history. But Don, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive right into something here that gets us to the feminine, which is it occurred to me like an hour ago that we are right on the precipice that is on the Jewish calendar uh, between the month, the Hebrew month of Tevet, which we're just closing out, the 29th day of Tevet, and beginning Shvat. If you, uh, if you have clear skies, which we don't here in San Francisco, and you look out your window this evening, you will see a sliver of the moon. Mm. So the Hebrew calendar is, based, is a lunar calendar. It's yes. based on right lunar cycles. And so we're right here at the beginning of a woman's festival, and I want to start us off here, that's called Rosh Chodesh, which is literally head of the month. Okay. Yeah. And so I want to open us up to that, the um, prominence of this female festival, which not surprisingly uh, revolves around the moon. Um, 
Can I just, before we go there, I, my own personal curiosity, where in New York are you from, Bachir? (laughs) So (laughs) Brooklyn to Long Island, you know, my parents fulfilled that dream to move out of the urban center and get a, get a piece of grass uh, in, in suburbia. So it's a funny story. The, before Stony Brook University was built, my parents bought a small house, which then was in the path of building that university. Yeah. And they, they could be bought out or they could have the house moved. So we have photographs of the house being you know, put on a, the back of a truck, basically, or a, what, what is that called? Like a, a flatbed. Flatbed, yeah, flatbed truck. Right, and moved to Thompson Hay Path. And that's where I, that's where I was raised. I am a Staten Islander, but no I asked. Yes, I am a native Staten Island. My whole family is still on, well, basically in New York State, but mostly on Staten Island. So that's why I was like, yay, another New Yorker. And I know, let's see, friends and members of my family who went to Stony Brook. So yeah, I like hearing that. So I had to just jump in there. With <laughs> so glad that we share that, Sean. Thank you. Right. Yeah. So what, what is, you were talking about this festival as I jumped in there. Oh no. I mean, I just want to, I want to share with you a very, very short piece here that I think really, you know, when we think about, or when I think about um, one of my hesitations about becoming a rabbi was a, can I do it? Uh, Is it possible? Um, And I still held on to an unexamined image of the Ashkenazi white dude with a long white beard who has like every has his fingers in every deep well of of wisdom Mm. um and so to start with the rosh chodesh and this poem i thought is a perfect entree into this conversation and it, it goes like this moon 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 emunah which means faith lev 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 which means heart levana which means white here I await with perfect faith to light my heart in the new moon dark. Shechina, you never wane. May your moon grow full again. So Shechina, we'll talk about later, uh, hopefully when we talk about Kabbalah, if we get there. Shechina is the female aspect of the divine that roams the earth with all of us. So this, wow. yeah, so wow. this poem gets us right to the, um, really the truth that, the feminine has always been a part of Judaism and it sort of got edited out over time. Mm. Wow. There's so, so many places. There's a fascination I have and we'll, we'll go, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you about it if we can have some time to go to it because you mentioned the Ashkenazi and I've always been interested in the diaspora and the different groups, the Sephardic in particular, I've always found as a fascinating part of the diaspora. But is this, are these aspects that you talk about, is there a difference in these traditions for both of the different groupings, the different parts of the Jewish diaspora of the, in terms of how the feminine is viewed in any way, just out of curiosity, because you mentioned that. It's such a great question. So there are, you know, I, I think we limit ourselves when we think about, especially in the West, when we think about Judaism as being owned by Western European Jewish experience Mm -hmm. and the diaspora, like wherever Jews wandered throughout the world, they engaged with their host culture. Right. And so they picked up the traditions of those cultures. And so there's this very rich um, expression. So there's both the, we will not let go of the observance of this particular festival, let's say Passover, so where we might, where Ashkenazi Jews or, or Ashkenazi um, uh, Jews of their origin is Ashkenazi, where they might bring a certain element to their Seder table, like a, a food that's symbolic of the story of the Exodus. Mm-hmm. In the Sephardic culture, they'll take leeks and they actually like bang leeks against the table. And, you know, many people here like out in Northern California look at that and say, Hmm, where did that come from? But in terms of the understanding of an expression of female in the tradition, that's a good question. I think it depends on how willing each community is to look at the the role of the feminine divine at the sort of that that crossroads between Mesopotamian Mesopotamian how do you say that someone help me Mesopotamian yes thank you 
culture and the the on the origins of Judaism. So what what do I mean around that? That in Sumerian culture, women were much more, um, you know, they owned land and they were judges and they were doctors. And so the culture that the offshoot of that Jewish uh, expression mm-hmm. um, took that on and it wasn't wasn't questioned. I don't know if that answers your question, Sean. No, absolutely. I was I, it just, again, I was curious because, again, it's just something that I find really fascinating, just how the this particular ancient culture, this ancient faith it was maintained and maintained with different sorts of aspects in different parts of the world. So I always thought, here's my shot. Now I can ask. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and similar, you know, we were speaking earlier about uh, that time in history when, um, when Christianity went from being, you know, a, a banned religion to being accepted by the, the Roman empire and then became the official religion of the Roman empire and how it was the very similar with that, that, you know, the Christian missionaries or, or believers had gone into different lands to spread the word and wherever they went, they sort of absorbed the, the cultural elements of those places as well. So there were many different forms of Christianity mm-hmm. in the first couple hundred years AD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the Roman and then the Christian customs definitely influenced the general cultures mm-hmm. and the way that both Judaism and Christianity um, inter- integrated and spoke to one another. And I know the status mm-hmm. of women in early Christianity, and Sean, you might know more about this than I do. It's been hotly debated in recent des- decades, especially right. after the women's movement in Western countries became mainstream. And I think the evidence is a little bit mixed, but in the New Testament, women function right alongside men, especially in early Christianity. Absolutely. Well, that's certainly, I am of the belief that that most of the evidence that I've seen indicates that that's absolutely the case. And that it was later as you become more Romanized, and those mm-hmm. who listen, they know I love ancient Rome, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is Rome was a pretty an intensely patriarchal culture. And that I think influenced a lot of that being suppressed. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you've got, you know, Paul's letters. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's, it's kind of cool that he calls women coworkers and he refers to them um, with a Greek word. I believe that we translate as deaconesses, which is interesting because in Judaism, the, there were women priestesses, right? And he even calls in the uh, in his letters he calls women apostles, and it's hard to know exactly what he meant or what these terms mm-hmm. mean. But there's a lot of evidence of women's kind of co-activity with men. Yes, definitely. I there's Dawn and I have talked about how you know the early masses of that since they were yeah. held in houses and this domestic domain in the Roman mindset becomes a domain of women. So you have women leading and initiating. But I think even in, I love things like in the Nag Hammadi, Mm -hmm. and you can see things in the gospels there where you just have a very clear indication of the, like you say, I love that, the the co-importance, co-workers of women. So I think there's absolutely tons of evidence that you have a very, very strong female presence in early Christianity, which gets suppressed and then sadly lost and forgotten like a lot of other things with women in history. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And if you listen to this podcast, you've heard us talk about quite a few of them. So Rabbi Bechir, um, you had a couple of stories that you wanted to share with us of examples of sort of the way that women were valued in the Old Testament. Can you share those with us? Mm-hmm. And I just want to um, take this opportunity to make a distinction between some terms. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrew Bible. So generally speaking, the what is understood or categorized as Old Testament from a Christian perspective is um, referred to as the Hebrew Bible. So okay. I just want to point that out. And it's not a not a judgment, just a term. Um, and I'm so excited to in, introduce you to one of my favorite kick-ass women in the Hebrew Bible, 
Devora, and she was an Israelite judge. I love Devora. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, can you just see her reclining beneath her palm tree and <laughs> litigating cases? I mean, she held a, a position of great power. Um, so she's this Israelite judge who we meet in the Book of Judges in chapters four and five, and as a prophetess. Devorah heard messages from God, and she transmitted them to the Israelites. So she's both she's both a judge, like she's a, a an attorney, and she is a prophet. And she settled the we read the most difficult legal cases, and she led the Israelites in war against their enemies. Um, so this story relates to specifically the oppressor, the king of Hazor, and Devorah was from the tribe of Ephraim one of the 12 tribes, and she held court in this fixed location uh, as opposed to traveling around in a circuit as uh, most other judges did. So as I mentioned, her court was located under this palm tree. And by the way, the palm tree in ancient history and its branches represent peace and fruitfulness and grace and elegance and majesty and military triumph. So as the story goes, one day God announces to a man named Barak, that he, God, will deliver the then the greatest current oppressor, King Yabin, who is the king of Azor, into his hands, into the general Barak's hands. And Barak needs to ready himself for that military confrontation, but he has serious reservations. He doesn't trust that he can fulfill this tour, and probably for good reason. King Yabin had, we read, a massive, disciplined, well-armed army. And for a little bit of perspective here, Yabin's army possessed 900 iron uh, chariots. So to provide a comparison, the entire Egyptian army of the day owned 924 iron chariots. So this is a little bit daunting, and it was absolutely demoralizing Right. And especially for Barack. Um, and so Barack does something that flips this drama on its head. But also, I think it illustrates the character and the role of Devorah in the story. So while under her tree litigating and eating dates, perhaps Barack arrives uh, to her date tree and says, basically, I can't do this alone. Devorah, come with me into battle. And then he says, and this is profound. He says to her, if you won't come with me, I won't go. Mm. It's just a, right? It's a wonderful inversion of a stereotypical male-driven military confrontation. And here's the kicker. Devorah responds very simply, all right, Barack, I'll go with you. But be forewarned. The path that you have chosen will not be for your glory. The wind will be delivered into the hands of a woman. And I'll close with this. Devorah is not referring to herself here, but to another woman named Yael, who becomes the heroine of the entire story because she, at the end, lures the general of the opposition army into her tent and she takes a little hammer and she kills him with a tent peg through his head. Yeah. You know the story. And right after in the text, she is pronounced the most blessed of women. It's incredible. Can you say, can you have their names again? Devorah? Of course, there's a name we're Devorah. familiar with. Devorah, Devorah, is, the, Devorah? is the Hebrew name, but it's Deborah. Okay. Right? And Yael. And Yael, okay. Yeah. And King Yabin uh, is this, uh, the king of Azor, um, who was a constant threat to, he's a Canaanite tribes, constant threat to the the uh, Hebrew tribes that were trying to pass through a certain territory. Right. And, and Yael is often spelled with a J, if I am correct. Is that, is that right? So yeah, transliteration is such a, it's yeah. a slippery slope. So you <laughs> see it spelled Y-A-E-L, or you see it spelled exactly, you see it spelled J-A-E-L. Okay. But the J, of course, is yeah. Right. Yeah. Just in case people are Googling it, then uh, oh, there you they, go. they know to look for both. Yeah. yeah. Could you also help too with you, you point out the Hebrew Bible. What is the Difference the Hebrew Bible and the Torah. How is that? Ah, great. Wonderful. So there are a few sort of go-to wisdom canons. Torah is a word that means, it actually means bullseye, um, or haderech, oh, wow. it's like the way, or which 
it relates to the way I think that Christians discuss the Bible as the way, the word and the way. Um, it means instruction. The Torah are the first five books of the Bible that we that Christians and Jews share. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay. Right? Tanakh is, you know, the story that I just shared of Devorah uh, and Yael is in Tanakh, which is the compilation of Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So Nevi'im are the prophets and Ketuvim are the writings. So in the Christian Bible, there are some, there's some overlap and then some not. Like the, the book where we find the Hanukkah story in the book of Maccabees, it's in the Christian Bible, is no longer in the Hebrew Bible. But the first five books of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible are the same. And that is, that is the Torah, the first five books. Got it. Good to know. Good to know. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I don't know if uh, we have time for just another quick story. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Another one? Yeah. 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 Oh, wonderful. Do. So, and I think this, this, um, this gets to the, the voice of women and the voice of women in directing their destiny that, you know, just got muddied and then eventually lost, but it's right there in the text. So, you know, the patriarch Abraham, he sends his servant Eleazar to his relatives, Abraham's relatives in Haran, in Mesopotamia, which is today Iraq, I said it correctly, in order to find a bride for his son Isaac, right? This is a a pretty common gesture. So off Eleazar goes, and Abraham, of course, loads him with a chest of jewels, and a whole bunch of camels, which illustrates Abraham's wealth. Right. And he sends, right, he sends him into Haran, where he spots the maiden Rivka, or Rebecca, who is filling up a jar with water from a well. And we know that in the Bible, the transformational events happen at a well or at the well. These moments like of clarity and renewal. So Eliezer approaches Rebecca at the well and he asks her, for some water and so she gives him the water but on her own she goes a little bit further and she says hey you know let me water your camels so this gesture of kindness seals the deal for Eliezer and the text describes that like he sees her going above and beyond he actually before that event Eliezer says if I see a woman who and basically Rebecca fulfills what he's hoping for you know someone who is checks all the dots on the list yeah exactly and we know that water, you know, that's a, that is a cherished uh, resource in the desert. So, right. um, yeah. but what's really great about this story is that when the proposal of marriage is offered to Rebecca, she says to Eliezer, let me go consult with my family. So she goes to her brothers and her mother and her father, and she describes what just takes place. And then the text tells us that her parents put the question back to their daughter and they ask her. Rivka, do you want to go with Eleazar to Abraham and Sarah's home to marry Isaac? And so from this story, we get a sort of a very, it's not halacha or Jewish law, but a tradition that says that a woman must, and we're talking about a heterosexual marriage here. Right. um, And we can touch on on that in a bit if we have time, but um, that a woman has a right to say no very different from the way that women were became chattel eventually and were sort of sold off to to men, but that's not how it originally is laid out for us. Right. Could you say more about that? That's to me an interesting sort of historical development. So what time frame do we have where a woman is saying no, like you're talking about now, and to the time frame where that changes and what happens? I mean, I, I, we're talking specifically in the Jewish tradition, of course, but what what experiences were going on for the Jews that transformed some of these things? Okay, great. Yeah, so it's very difficult to pinpoint like this particular story. When was it written? But historically, it would be really interesting and important, I think, to know so that we understand what does this come out of? Like what? And and then later, of course, why did it change? So I'm going to say. And I also want to say that the Hebrew Bible was written over an enormous period of, like over millennia, whereas the Christian Bible is 
what, a couple of uh, centuries. So we're talking yeah. about an expansive period of time. And what I want to say about that again is that this definitely, definitely, I mean, I want to, I feel confident that this, this um, exchange comes out of that crossroads between Sumerian, like 3000 BCE, before the Christian era, or before, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> before the common era. Right, right. yes. Um, so there was this, you know, and this took place over many centuries, uh, when those stories of, look, the, in Mesopotamia and Sumerian and Akkadian cultures, women were priests and priestesses. And if you had a priest, priestess in your family, that was a great honor. And women's voice was really critically important to the welfare of society. And so I right, think this yeah. story comes directly out of that. Nice. Yeah. And where do where do we see it begin to shift? Where do we see it start to change and start to become a different status or a view of women? Sean, do you mean in the books of the Jewish Bible or do you mean in the practice of Judaism? I'm actually talking about in the culture because the culture, I mean, if I'm understanding uh, you correctly, but you're saying that this is something that we see in the books of the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and then we see a difference in the way women are perceived or viewed. I'm imagining that there's going to be a parallel in the culture and in the spiritual tradition. So, kind so of what time frame are we thinking? So I guess I want to say a couple of things about that. One is here we have this canon, the, the Hebrew Bible, right? Mm -hmm. The second temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. We know that that happened first century. Right. And then Jews are thrown into the diaspora. They actually, uh, you know, they, they wander in the diaspora until the creation of the state of Israel when they have a homeland. So, Another, another uh, canon of wisdom needed to be created, and that was the Talmud. So the ah, okay. right, so the Talmud, the you know first the Mishnah, and then the Gemara, and there we find the oral tradition that helped Jews wherever they were in the world. You know, some of them stayed in Jerusalem, not many. Some went to Babylonia. Some went to the north, to the south. Some went to to. The, the West actually went to Rome, but wherever they went, they needed to have a single binding law to hold on to. And so the Talmud was created. And it was the, Sean, the, the rabbis of the Talmud. <laughs> Sorry, I'm listening to the dogs in the background. <laughs> okay, so I have these two dogs <laughs> who are very excited right now because they love the study of the Talmud. Absolutely. You re you said the Talmud and they came, they just, they just lit up. Yes. Very, very devout dogs. That's fantastic. So I don't know, Sean, if you, how, um, if that can be, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Um, sorry. <laughs> I think it's delightful. I think it's delightful. Um, it's, right. It's in, totally fine. Oh, thank you. So in, in the Talmud, it was in the hands of the rabbis of the first century, second century, up through the fifth century when that canon was closed, or sixth century, that um, we took a, an enormous turn. And I would say there, and this is a hugely broad stroke, that the genius of that period and of those rabbis was the the continuity of the Jewish faith tradition, once that, look, the temple was destroyed, this is God's home, the pilgrimage festivals could no longer happen. How can we worship and praise God? How can we be in connection with God if we can't bring, um, you know, if we, can't, if we cannot go to the temple? And mm -hmm. it was at that point that this, that along with the fact that the basis of Christianity which was, you know, Saul who fell off his donkey and became Paul and said, I had a vision and there is, you know, this one God. It, it rested squarely on the shoulders of a man, that is Jesus, right? And mm -hmm. so the interpretive quality of the faith tradition and the expression of its rituals, I cannot believe that these dogs are right now outside my door. I'm so sorry. You wanted to take a break and we can yeah, just take a quick break. Okay, let's end. do that. And I, yeah, yeah let me get them downstairs. Okay, hang on. Pitbulls are really cute, beautiful dogs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
Hello, welcome back. Hi, so sorry. <laughs> oh, it's sorry. quite all right. It's quite all right. Yeah. We were saying a... they had happy barks. We loved hearing their happy barks. Yeah, they're yeah. great dogs. They're two great res- rescue dogs from South Korea. Okay, so we are back from doggy break, and we were talking about <laughs> we were the first century, first century Talmud. <laughs> yes, yeah. So um, thanks, you guys. Um, so, right, it was at this, uh, this was a cataclysmic moment, you can imagine, for the Jewish people. And, and they survived, right? Like the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites didn't. But the, but the Jews did because they said, we are going to, to focus ourselves now not around the temple that stood in Jerusalem, but around this text. And this text is our halacha. It's a word in Hebrew that is, uh, the infinitive is lelechet, which means to walk. It's like the way that we walk through this world. And the Talmud is the source for everything from um, when to light our Shabbat candles to, uh, you know, if my ox wanders into your backyard and breaks its leg, who's liable? You know, was your fence broken? Um, Or, you know, do I have an unruly ox? It was everything about, (laughs) and the whole purpose of it uh, was how, it says in the Hebrew Bible, uh, God says, I am holy, you shall be holy. I mean, the, the, the Torah is a holiness code. And uh, it is, becomes the most, I think, uh, beautiful and smart ethical system. But back to the point. So, Sean, it was at that point, like from the second century through the sixth century, that those conversations and the um, describing of the Talud, of the Mishnah, the Gemara, uh, was in the hands of men. And the halakha, the laws around women's role in uh, the, the tradition were greatly diminished. And I think for several reasons, the cultures that Jews found themselves in were, uh, you know, kingdoms and hierarchical system, patriarchal systems. Mm-hmm. And, and again, as I said earlier, I don't know if this part got cut off, but, you know, Christianity was... Uh, Christianity was it, right? And um, that was uh, man sent to earth. And, uh, you know, the I guess the incarnation of the divine. Whereas, and this gets to Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, the, the female uh, version of the divine that roams the earth, fascinating, is Shekhinah. Um, Shekhinah is a, a feminine word, you know, uh, Hebrew is masculine feminine, like right. romantic languages. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of a very broad and clunky way to answer your question. But, uh, but what I really want to emphasize is that at its, you know, at the onset, there are plenty of examples of women and men, you know, and it's, again, that's binary, but shoulder to shoulder, uh, you know, disputing very critical matters that had to do with the health of their, of their tribes and their culture. Well, that is amazing. Now it's, it's interesting you bring up uh, Kabbalah because I, I I always wondered about that too. I know Dawn is uh, obviously very interested in that. I had been invited uh, to attend, uh, I guess, um, an introduction to it at one of the centers. And I just thought it was, for me, what was interesting was, and this is where gender comes in, uh, what I had read was you needed to be a man of a certain age <laughs> with a having had a, both a son and a daughter. Mm-hmm. And me being someone who I actually, whatever the faith tradition, I, I like to really, I, I love the, the respect of that tradition. And I thought, well, why am I really here? Because I don't have kids. Uh, is this really does this make sense for me? So that's my segue into, okay, tell us please about this, how this ties to the feminine one, because of this tradition that I had heard of. And two, do you think that the way that maybe modern people are invited to it, is this something that makes sense within the tradition to open it up in a different way? Hmm. That's a lot of stuff there, but yeah, uh, great. (laughs) I love it. Um, how did you like your experience there? Other than, um, I guess you just shared that you don't have children. 
Yeah, yeah, I would. So, and listen, the time's still, you know, there's still time, but <laughs> they, can, they can invite me back. Uh, but uh, it was interesting. I, I love, I have read about Kabbalah. Is it pr- pronounced properly Kabbalah or Kabbalah? What's the proper pronunciation? So, so like, yeah, like transliteration, that's a hard one, right? Um, if you're in Israel, you say, uh, you would say uh, Kabbalah, but here we say Kabbalah. Kabbalah. Okay. okay. So I have always found it deeply fascinating. Mm-hmm. My experience at the center, this I felt like it was more, this was a very Hollywood kind yeah. of experience I had. So I'll just leave it at that to be respectful. It felt not quite like I was stepping into ancient mysticism. It was a little more modern. Let's just say. Yeah. Trendy and less authentic. Yeah, uh, yeah. To, uh, to again to give them the benefit of the doubt, it just mm-hmm. it didn't resonate quite to the depths for me that I would like to have, like to have had it resonate. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, there's a story that um, oh gosh, where does this originate? There's a story that uh, relates to what you started with um, when you reach you're you're not permitted to even open the Zohar, which is the core text. Um, it means illumination. You're not even permitted to open that core text until you know all of Torah and all of Talmud. And you have to be 40 years old before you can, you know, sit with someone and study this. And you have to have had a, a given birth to a boy and a girl, which in itself is interesting. I think that that just... I'm not suggesting that everyone should have children or must have children, um, but that for, again, for a tribe that wants to make sure that they survive, the emphasis was on have children, have children, have children, mm-hmm. and that if you had a boy and a girl, then then you're done, right? Then you fulfilled this, this, uh, this mitzvah or this commandment. All that said, here's what I want to say about the sort of appropriation of Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism in our Western culture, that, yeah, it's been somewhat, you know, like, oh, this is another opportunity to explore mysticism without having um, even a foundational understanding of the stories of Torah and the, and particularly Talmud. And so then how does one even enter Kabbalah if you don't have that experience? It's not that you can't. It's that you've then got a very limited view of what it means. What is Jewish mysticism, right? Um, so I just wanted to say that and that putting a red, you know, a, a red thread around your your wrist is one symbol of Kabbalah, but it doesn't, I, I don't know that you can actually get to the depths of what it means, uh, you know, just, just using the ritual objects. So Kabbalah is, is deep and rich. It's a, a Hebrew word that means reception or tradition reception right like when you walk into a hotel in israel the front desk is called a kabbalah it's where you're received it's beautiful oh interesting yeah um it's also translated dawn as occult knowledge um and it deals with the essence of god and we approach this you know with very humbly Right. So the Kabbalists believe that God roams this earth with us is found. Basically, they're saying uh, we're swimming through God when we walk from one end of the room to the other, that everything is God. Everything is God. And that our our goal here is to sort of peel back as much as possible the the sparks of god or divinity in everything like we get a gl- we have the we have the opportunity to see the glimmer of god everywhere at every moment but that this material world blocks us from kabbalah from receiving that what i want to say about kabbalah and the feminine is that kabbalah also a, a feminine word is sort of bound up uh not entirely bound up, but that it is deeply connected to Shekhinah. You heard me mention that before. Mm-hmm. So Shekhinah is the was sent into exile with us. So what does that mean? That you know Jesus was sent to Earth to be in conversation with, to to prophesize, to say that we that there is a path to. Um, Redemption, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Shekhinah says, um, I am here with you. 
okay, how about this? Whenever two or more people, and this is, you know, Sean, you might be familiar with this. I am. I know where you're going. Whenever two or more people come together to speak the word of God or to pour over Torah or to praise or petition or pray, the the Shekhinah or the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is there with them. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And listen to this on Friday evening. It's called Kabbalat Shabbat. We are welcoming the Shabbat. Who are we welcoming? The Shekhinah to come and join us at our table and say, come be with us and bless us. Um, I'm going to stop there and see if you have any questions. It's a lot. No, it's wonderful. It reminds me of when you talk about Shabbat. When I was in college, uh, I was often invited to join the Shabbat. I guess it would be dinner, I uh-huh. guess, the, on Friday night. So I would go to the Shabbat uh, because we had a particular um, uh, traditional uh, Jewish dining facility. Mm-hmm. So that's where the kids would go. The kids. The back, kids. <laughs> back in the days. And so I would join with them. So I, uh, I love the image that you kind of put out there. So I think that is incredibly interesting. What is, in, in terms of, I guess, modern day Judaism and where do this where does this all fit in with the role of women today just in general I mean and obviously I know there are orthodox and conservative and reform so how does that all sort of work yeah if I'm understanding so first what I want to say is that um I believe this is just me but sheer that here in the west we're living in a trans-denominational world and especially now given uh covid um, and the access to so many different Jewish rituals and experience and prayer spaces uh, virtually, right? Like you can just drop mm-hmm. yourself in anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that this idea of movements in Judaism, which like in Christianity, you know, being Protestant or being Baptist, et cetera, different ways of interpreting the mm-hmm. word, right? Um, so these different... so there are very blurry lines between these movements and Judaism. I want to state that first, that I sort of raised myself and my children in the conservative movement, not conservative like conservative politics, but the gray tones of Judaism. Um, In other words, the reform movement says uh, halakha or Talmud is less important, not that it's not important, but less important than tikkun olam or being a social activist, like partnering with God to make the world a better place than we found it. So very much about action. Conservative Mm -hmm. Judaism is sort of the gray tones between reform and orthodoxy or modern orthodoxy. So what I'm drawn to in conservative Judaism is that I need to make an informed choice all the time. I'm not told precisely what to believe or how to behave, as the Talmud says. And I also don't just throw away, excuse me, I don't, uh, I'm very invested in halakha or what Jewish law says about certain things. And then I trust myself to make an informed decision. So I want to say that first. See if you have any. I really love that. Yeah. 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 I, I I actually have been hearing a lot of echoes of um, Native American spirituality mm. in in this because um, the the Sioux uh, culture cultural traditions, which I'm most familiar with, they talk about the good red road mm. and that. To be holy is to walk the good red road, which is the way of walking in rhythm with everything on the earth, with the flying ones, the standing ones, the the swimming ones, uh, the two leggeds, the four leggeds, all that sort of thing. And and when you said you know the Talmud means the way we walk through the world, that that really struck me as as you know a similar um, a similar way of thinking of spiritual practices. Mm, I love and, that. Yeah. And um, I love yeah, that, 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 uh, that I'll leave it at that. Well, and I, I wanted to, cause the thing that also struck me was what you said about reform Judaism and social activism. I have thought for quite a long time that one of the greatest gifts that Jewish culture has given to particularly the modern world is this social activism. There are so many, particularly in the 20th century, but the late 19th into the 20th century, um, Jews who have been 
at the forefront of civil rights and social activism throughout the world. And it seemed to be, I always wondered, it's interesting because I hadn't heard this before, where this connection to being so active was <laughs> because it is so deep mm-hmm. within the culture. So, so, so uh, yes, and I, I just love what you're both saying here. What a wonderful conversation. I want to say that, you know, I, I talked earlier about the Exodus, right, the Passover story. And so Moses leads 600,000 people, and that's and Egyptians as well, who wanted to leave Egypt. Um, and those 600,000 only represent men, by the way. So there were oh. maybe a million. And, you know, this is a master story. I actually don't believe it literally happened, but I believe that it is a defining story. And mm-hmm. certainly an important one that we return to year after year, if, if not more often. But listen to this. So we were wandering through the desert. And 40 days later, where do we arrive? At the foot of this mountain. And you know the story, Moses goes up, Moses goes down, Moses goes up. And you know, he goes up the second time because the first time he smashes the tablets when he sees this, um, this uh, avodah, this, this uh, idol worshiping taking place uh, in his absence. But anyway, he comes down the second time and he gives this covenant. It's basically a marriage contract. He gives this covenant to the people. And what do they say? They say, na'asevenishma in Hebrew, na'asevenishma, which means we will do and we will hear. So Sean, to the question of, uh, or to the discussion of social activism, right at the start, the very first thing that the Hebrews say is, okay, we're going to take out, we don't even know what this contract says, but we will act and then we'll understand and hear. So from that point forward, the sort of the, the core of, of our understanding about what it means to be a Jew is uh, connected to accepting an agreement, a covenant, which is, covenants are so important, and saying, we will act alongside you. And one other quick story, then when they get to the Sea of Reeds and, you know, Pharaoh's army is fast approaching and, you know, Moses is trying to get through the Sea of Reeds, but it's not parting and he's fighting with God about it. And what does God say to Moses? What do you, I brought you here. I helped get you here. Do, now it's up to you. You do something. Nice. And I've given you the Torah and it's all in there. This is in your hands now. You will partner with me. And this is, and then later it says actually that the instruction or, you know, the red road or the path or the way is not in my hands. It's in your hands. You nice. decide how you're going to walk. So, mm. I, I mean, I think uh, it's been there from the start, that idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. It is. It is. Do we want to maybe at this point kind of tie things up? Oh, sorry. I want to make one. I I just have one more question that has to do with sort of the the origins and the current practice. Um, How much autonomy, like some, we talk about, you know, how how, um, the culture of the place that people were settled seeps into the traditions over time. How much, um, how much autonomy does each rabbi have in sort of uh, revealing and explaining and leading their uh, temple in terms of like the, the traditions and and which areas of the Talmud are used and stuff like that. Is it, is it, um, is there room for individual exploration and interpretation, I guess is what I'm asking. Ah, great. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, it's one of the reasons personally and professionally, I mean, I I don't extract, I, I cannot extract my identity from the work that I do and I think in that way I am incredibly blessed. And I'll say there is a this idea of Rav de Atra, which is when that so when the temple stood in Jerusalem, uh, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees who oversaw temple rites. And after that, when uh, we spread out in the diaspora, and there were men and women who were interpreting law or trying to come to terms with what it means to to hold on to this faith tradition, um, 
it eventually happened that there were these learning centers, these synagogues, and obviously that's a Greek word. Um, by the way, there's a difference, again, terminology between temple and synagogue. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about Great. that in a sec. But okay. um, to, your, to your question, um, I love this, that it was at that point that whatever community you lived in, so there's a Babylonian Talmud and there's a Jerusalem Talmud. Why? Because the people who lived in Babylonia had very different sort of, they had a different context and different pressures than the people in Jerusalem. The people in Babylonia, that was an agriculture, well, the laws had to be real and had to pertain to real life stuff in order right. for, right, in order for it to matter. Yeah. So today, the, the question's so great, the re, when a rabbi becomes a rabbi, she or he or they must study the Talmud to be able to interpret it in a way that best meets the needs of that community. Mm. And there's great trust that's placed upon the rabbi and the community to understand what that means for them. Now, that can be you know, greatly distorted. There can be a power struggle there. But you know, uh, we trust that a rabbi will say, there's this great expression, shviti adonai, like know who stands before you. It can't be about me. It can't even really be about the Torah. It has to be a, about the people. And going back to this, uh, what's placed upon us, which is, I am holy, you shall be a holy people. So how does interpreting this law, wherever we are in the world, make us more holy? And I'll provide an example. Um, actually, I'm going to let that go for the moment. But so, okay. yes, every community gets to decide for themselves, and it's placed upon the rabbi who interprets the Talmud and says, this is my understanding of what, uh, what is best for all of us. That's wonderful. Mm. And, and you're absolutely right. It also leaves room for, um, you know, for personal ego and power struggles to, to affect things, but at, but it leaves in exchange, you get flexibility, mm. you get mm -hmm. room for learning, you get mm. room for negotiation, you, you are open to hear the voices, the many voices that are in the group that is worshiping together. I, precisely, yeah. precisely. Yeah. There's this great story in the Talmud about a group of rabbis, and they're prominent rabbis, and they're disputing some. They're disputing halakha. They're disputing law about what makes an oven kosher or not kosher. Right? It's it's wonderful. They go on forever about this <laughs> argument, and then finally, God says, "It says a kolbat, which is the voice from the heaven, says." Uh, why are you asking me? Well, I, I stated this earlier, but this story is lovely. This is in your hands. You guys argue this. I trust you to argue this. And I think if you, well, there's the machloket shel bashamayim, which is the the argument for heaven's sake rather than the argument for ego's sake. And that is very much a foundation in the way that we machloket or have these disagreements or or discussions about um, how to interpret law. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of know who stands before you. That's really wonderful. Mm. <laughs> That's really wonderful. Oh, my goodness. I love this. So um, before we close and uh, I, um, Sean, I'm, I'm, I am watching the time, but I just want to oh, know. Yeah. I have yeah. a question too, actually. Want to follow yeah. up. Um, I just want to know because um, I, I love this idea of the Kabbalah. Um, like are in the tradition of Kabbalah, are there, is there room for female leadership? I mean, obviously you're a rabbi, so there is room for female leadership, but, but does this idea of the Kabbalah being feminine, does that, does that make more room, I guess, for the feminine divine idea Mm. than, than um, the books that come before it in study. This is, this is a very challenging um, idea. So while the Kabbalah it definitely um, upholds Shrina and the feminine divine um, for the purpose of revealing God in everything 
and the intimacy. I mean, Kabbalah and the Zohar are, are very interested in the possibility of intimacy with the divine. I would say all of that is feminine. That said, because the Kabbalah is, for the most part, authored and held by uh, orthodoxy, Mm. uh, it is outside of that world. And I want to say, too, the Kabbalah is esoteric, and it's, it's difficult to delve into. I think in rabbinical schools today in the West, at least, that I know of, it is studied, but it really, it requires uh, a, a very different, I'm not answering your question, but what I want to say is that it's all about the feminine, uh, okay. but it's not, it's not necessarily uh, held by or taught by uh female rabbi. I mean, I'm sure female rabbis do teach about Zohar, uh, the Zohar, but yeah, we're not quite fully there yet. Okay. Okay. Totally valid. And I want to just ask one question too, before we uh, end, and something I probably should have asked at the beginning is how common are female rabbis today? (laughs) Is it growing? Is it, is it largest kind of, where are we, where do we stand with that? Great question. So, um, there was a woman in Germany, she's absolutely remarkable, uh, Regina Jonas, or Jonas was her name. She was ordained privately in 1935, and she became actually the world's first ordained female rabbi. And I would absolutely be remiss if I did not bring her name into this conversation. Um, that said, it wasn't until 1972 that Sally Prisand became the first woman ordained here in the United States as a rabbi by a you know, a, a legitimate Jewish seminary. Um, and then finally, 1985, my beloved rabbi, Amy Eilberg, was the first female rabbi ordained in the, conserv- in the conservative movement. Um, today, there are about, and it's difficult to know exactly, I believe around 50 women who identify with modern orthodoxy or orthodoxy. And hey, please, can we have a podcast about that? Mm. Um, how these women get ordained and who is doing it. Um, I would say there are anywhere between 300 and 500 women uh, who are, people identify, I guess, as female, who Mm. are uh, rabbis here in the West. I'm not so sure in Europe how many. I I should know that, but we can can mis-Google it. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's not... Well, that's still, yeah, that's not, that's still not, close to parody no yeah no it isn't and there's still you know in terms of being um in terms of women being leaders or clergy or chaplains in this faith tradition i think it you know it just expands the conversation i think uh it just you know opens up the interpretation of it and the voice of it and the feel of it and the color of it and the texture of it um more broadly yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even just the way that you told us the story of Rebecca is, is I would imagine, different from um, the way a man would tell the story of Rebecca. Well, there you go. Right. So for sure, we need those. We, we need the feminine and the masculine in balance. And we need to understand that the feminine has always been there. And I, you know, I often ask the question, what was left on the cutting room floor when these, when these women's voices and names were, were cut out of the narrative um, a lot, you know, and so we're bringing it, we're bringing it back. And I thank you for this conversation to help, um, to help me and all of us bring back the feminine to this narrative. What a Absolutely. wonderful image, too. I love that. The cutting room floor. I have to yeah. remember that. that yeah. Yeah. Okay. On that note, Thank so, Dawn, are yes. you sitting in the other? I, I have, I think, I think that's a beautiful place to, to wrap it up. And mm-hmm. thank you so much, Rabbi Bachir, for, for being willing to talk with us so openly and so uh, joyfully today. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation. I loved it and meeting both of you and being part of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So with that, uh, we will 
end our this episode of the Feminine Divine. Again, I want to thank Rabbi Bachir and thank Don Sam Alden. I and am thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb. Yes, thank <laughs> you. And we will play our lovely outro music. Have a great, great rest of your day, everyone. All blessings. Take care, everyone. Blessed be.